Let us bow our heads for prayer. Father, we thank you for this morning and the opportunity to consider your word and your ways. We ask that by your Holy Spirit you would awaken our consciences, uh, that you would uh, inspire our thinking and change our lives. By your same Holy Spirit we pray. Amen. It is both a joy and a privilege to be with all of you again. I was here earlier this summer, hidden away in the back, toward the back, uh, and much to my surprise, which is always a good thing. Keep the rector on his toes. It's a great thing to be here for a confirmation service where people are declaring their faith publicly. It's something that the scriptures encourage over and over again. And, uh, and I am praying that God will bless each person who's coming forward to reaffirm their faith or to be confirmed. And I ask you during that time, please be praying for each of those individuals as they uh, seek to live out their life in Christ. A few months ago, I was heading down to Gainesville uh, to do an ordination, and first I was going to meet the ordinand for lunch. And as I was going, I was on some country or county roads, not major highways at one point, and I was following my GPS, and all of a sudden I saw a sign that said detour uh, and a road to the right. But my GPS, which is generally reliable about uh, major accidents or things like that, said to keep going, and I thought, well, Sometimes the detour signs stay up too long. That's happened to you, I'm sure. And so I kept going, thinking it's not going to be a big problem. And then all of a sudden, I came to a, a, a big barricade across the road. Now, I, I could have gone around it, but the words on the barricade were, bridge out. And at that point, I had a decision to make, and the decision was to go back to the detour sign and go a different route. Now, it's funny to joke about it, but in reality, if I'd ignored that second sign, I would have been driving to my death. That there were really two routes, one of which was a path of life, and one was a path of death. And in the Proverbs passage you just heard, there's this sense of two routes, two paths, it says at the end of Proverbs, uh, uh, the reading from Proverbs 9, leave your simple ways, and, and it doesn't mean stupid ways, like a simple person, the way we sometimes use that word. It means the ways that are too simple, too obvious, but not wise. And walk in the way of insight. There are two paths. There's a way of life, which is a way of insight, and then there's the simple ways, the ways that are all around us, but really lead to death. Leave your simple ways and live and walk in the way of insight. There are two ways. There have always been two ways. There have always been two sets of conflicting values. In our culture today, I want to suggest to you that we have two options. One is actually paganism. And it's always been around the church. It was around the people of Israel as well. It's not new territory. We think that there are new values coming in, but reality, they're just old values uh, with new faces. And the pagan path simply asks this question, fundamentally. How may my desires be fulfilled? 
Whereas the path of wisdom is a, is a different question altogether, which is, whom am I imitating? How are my desires fulfilled, or who am, am I imitating? In Ephesians, the reading you just had, and if you have a Bible near you, you should grab it. Uh, use of phones is also acceptable. Ephesians chapter 5, what we're looking at is part of what might be called Paul's catechism. We encourage those who are being confirmed to know the catechism of the church, but in a way, what Paul is doing is laying out, first of all, who we are in Christ, and then secondly, how we're to live in Christ. And at the beginning of the passage in Ephesians 5, he says this, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Be imitators of God. Now, the word be there can, uh, more, in a sense, more accurately be translated become imitators. In other words, it's a process word. It's not an instantaneous uh, change. Your goal is to become those who imitate God. And the God we're imitating is the God who's loved us through Jesus, who gave himself for us as a sacrifice for our sins. Be imitators of that God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then two, two paths, the pagan values, uh, which is, comes out of a culture of multiple gods, multiple choices, multiple philosophies, and we have that mindset in our culture now. In fact, we talk about my truth, meaning I have a particular set of beliefs and I don't, and I don't need to worry about your set of beliefs. But that's pagan. I'll pick Zeus. I'll pick Artemis. Pick a god. Pick the path you want. Or pick the true god. Follow the true god. Christian values. And I want to talk about three areas of conflict between pagan values and Christian values very quickly, but they're in the passage. Now, there's more in Ephesians. I'm only tackling what's in the passage for today in terms of where we're going to imitate God. Three areas, three values, speech, sex, and stuff. Let's start with speech. Verse 4 in Ephesians 5, Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. We talk about having free speech, but from a Christian point of view, we don't have free speech. We have limited speech, and it's limited by the persons that we're to become in Christ. We can't say anything we want about anybody. Jesus tells us never to call someone a fool. Paul says that we're to speak the truth in love. In other words, if we can't say something out of love for a person, we shouldn't say it. Speech. Now, this verse is translated in the New Living tra uh, uh, Translation. Uh, obscene stories, foolish talk, and coarse jokes these are not for you. Instead, let there be thankfulness to God. Before I became a Christian as a uh, young man, I was reading uh, Playboy magazine monthly. It's back when you had to wait every month for your new dose of pornography. And I'm looking back at it, of course you had the, 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 the photographs of women without clothing. You also had the articles that were theoretically making it more respectable. But as I think back, I think the most dangerous page 
or pages in Playboy magazine were the joke because it gave permission to be joking about things that from God's point of view were holy and to be sanctified. And Paul understands the importance of our speech and what we're talking about. Not just foul language, but subject matter. And so it's an interesting transition that he makes here. He says, let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be trans thanksgiving. And then he says this in verse 5, for you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or, or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Do you catch what he's saying? He said, what you're talking about will get translated into your actions. If you're constantly thinking obscenity and joke, crude joking, you're likely to live that out in your behavior. We become what we talk about. In some sense, joking tells us what, we, what our values are. And fundamentally, a pagan view sees life as a joke. Bob Dylan said this in one of the songs, there are many here among us who feel that life is but a joke, but you and I, we've been through that, and this is not our fate, so let us not talk false, falsely now. Our hour is getting late. The alternative to crude joking or filthy talk is not silence, but thanksgiving. Talking about the good things of God. That should be our subject matter. And the implication there, of course, is the more we think about God and thank God, the more we talk about that, the more we'll become like him. What do you talk about? Second area is sex. Uh, much of this was covered uh, in the Proverbs series you just did, and in some sense, what I'm doing now is a, a summary of some of those things. When I surprised Mike, he gave an excellent ser sermon on a Christian view of sexuality. I encourage you to go back to that. I'll just say this about the pagan view that's out there. There are two orders that go on in the pagan view of love. The first is you fall in love, you then have intercourse, and then you can get married. That's, that's the mode of the culture right now. Sometimes, you start with sex, you then you fall in love, and then you get married. But the Christian view has always been that the order is different. Now, in some cultures, we, we, we're a falling in love culture. It's, it, we match up through dating in various other ways. Other cultures, you have arranged marriage. But the primary order of sex within a Christian point of view is the promises of marriage first, then sexual intimacy, then you live in love. The issue of falling in love is not as important as living in love. Paul is catechizing the people of Ephesus in, in that region. And part of the reason I'm saying this to you, because you may say, well, I think I've got that part under control. I think I understand that part. My question I want to ask you today is, are you catechizing anybody in Christian values? Are you passing this kind of thinking on, or are you keeping silent?
Now, paganism has always said that gender, when it comes to sex, doesn't matter. God's plan for sexual intimacy is male, female, and marriage. And pagan cultures have almost always disagreed with a Christian view of marriage. I mean, think about it. Going back to the issue of order. When was the last popular romantic movie you saw where marriage preceded sex? I was thinking back, and I think I, the closest I can come to it is The Sound of Music. I don't know. I, but part of what's going on is that we misunderstand part of God's purpose in sexual intimacy. When I was a boy, I used to make model planes. I don't know if any of you ever did this, sometimes model cars. You get the plastic pieces, you have the instructions, and then you put them together following the instructions, and you put glue in the appropriate places, and you put those pieces together, and you end up, if you follow the instructions, with a model airplane. But I was sometimes uh, impatient, and I thought I knew how things would go together, and I would take the pieces, I'd put glue in them, and stick them together, and they were the wrong pieces. Or I put them in, they weren't aligned the way they were supposed to be. And what I discovered very quickly is it was a lot easier to glue things together than it was to separate them once they were glued. <laughs> Sexual intimacy within marriage is meant to be part of God's glue for that marriage. And if we use ahead of time, the pieces are not rightly aligned, and then we wonder why the marriage doesn't work. Years ago, we had a young man in a fellowship group we were leading in our home. I'll call him Josh. He was part of the fellowship. He was growing in Christ. Uh, but finally, he could not listen to God's call to sexual purity. And as a result, he walked away from the Lord. Well, tell you, 12 years later, he's still in touch with some people from that group. He did get married, things out of order, and now that marriage is falling apart, and he is miserable. God's order is for people's good. So speech, sex, and finally stuff. Verse 5, Paul, uh, Paul goes on to say, For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous. And then he says something dramatic. Uh, it, it would hit a Jewish uh, audience harder or even a, a Gentile audience with obvious adult, uh, idolatry around them. He says covetousness, he says that is an idolater. Someone who's coveting stuff is actually in the same place as somebody who's following another god. It would have been shocking to hear that. To have your heart set on acquisition is no different than having your heart set on an idol to follow another god entirely. Years ago, there was a television show, The Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous. I think I watched part of one and gave up. I had little interest in it, but it was very popular. But I thought about the title a lot. What we don't have in this culture is television shows about the poor and the generous. And we are pretty much infected with the acquisition mindset of this culture. What has been called the American dream. Success leading to wealth, leading to acquisition. 
Jesus speaks right into that. I was trying to think, what could I say about wealth? And I couldn't come up with anything better than what Jesus said about it, which is probably just as well. But in Luke 12, and again, I'm using New Living Translation, it says this, Jesus told them a story. A rich man had a fertile farm that produced fine crops. He said to himself, what should I do? I don't have room for all my crops. Then he said, I know, I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And then I'll have room enough to store all my wheat and other goods. And I'll sit back and say to myself, my friend, you have enough stored away for years to come. Now take it easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. Isn't that the American dream? By and large? But the story concludes with, God said to him, you fool, you will die this very night. Then who will get everything you worked for? Jesus' introduction to the story, he says this. I sometimes wish we could put it on the label of products or maybe at the bottom of television ads. He said, beware, guard against every kind of greed. Life is not measured by how much you own. Sounds practically un-American. And then at the end of the parable, Jesus gives this moral. Here's the lesson. He says, yes, a person is a fool to store up earthly wealth, but not have a rich relationship with God. So what does it mean for us? If it's not about stuff, how do we have a rich relationship with God? How do we desire more of God, more knowledge about him, more closeness with him, more obedience with him, more sacrificial generosity coming out of our trust and gratitude for him? The antidote to greed is giving. And it's crystally clear throughout the scripture. So which path are you on? Are you on the one that leads to destruction? Goes over the river, it crashes into the river? Outside the kingdom? Or are you a Christian in sort of pagan clothing? You're, you're a Christian in some parts of your life, but in other parts of your life, your values are still mostly that of the culture. The sacrifice of Jesus is necessary because we will fail over and over again in this transformation process. But we also have the life of Christ in us, as we heard in the gospel. We are people who are to be emerging from darkness. Paul says in verse 8, For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. That's really the bottom line issue. The pagan culture is all about living to please ourselves. And the kingdom of God is living to please the Lord. That's what it comes down to. So there are two paths. There's the lightest, lighted path of imitating God and pleasing him. And then the darkness path of imitating the world and losing our life or part of our life in Christ. Try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. That's the call. Which path are you really on? Let's bow our heads in prayer.
Father, we thank you that your word continually speaks into our lives and that your desire for us is to be children walking in light, fruitful lives, lives that display your kingdom and your character. We ask that you would continually, by that light, shine into the dark places in our hearts and help us to see how we need to change for the sake of the kingdom. By your Holy Spirit, help us to become your imitators. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I want to invite you to stand for the Nicene Creed before we move into the confirmations. And as the bishop said, this is not 